Okay, we're, we're going to start then on the Epistle of James. And so this is right after the book of Hebrews. And I want to give a background on who James is. So, it says in James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Okay, so who is this James? So as we look into this book, if we can learn something about the author, then we might glean something about their perspective. Well, this James is, is the brother of the half-brother of Jesus, is what Protestants look at him as. Uh, others look at him, the Catholic Church looks at him as the cousin of Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to look into that just a little bit. And the reason I want to look into that, if for no other reason, is to just show you why there's differences of opinion on whether he was the half-brother of Jesus or whether he was just a cousin of Jesus, a, a, a relative of Jesus. We know that Jesus' father was God. We know that uh, Mary uh, conceived Jesus as a virgin. So he didn't have an earthly father. His father was God. His earthly mother was Mary. But let's look at a few verses and see why there, there may be a difference of opinion on who James really is. Because James here does not identify himself as a... a uh, as the half-brother of Jesus. James never pulls that out of his pocket. James never uses that card to substantiate his credibility. This James happens to be the James who was the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem. It is certainly the relative of Jesus, whether he was the half-brother or a cousin. We're going to look at that a little bit more. But he was not a believer uh, during the lifetime of Jesus, he became a believer after the resurrection Jesus appeared to him. And we'll begin to look at that. But let's look in Matthew to just get some background on this James who's speaking. And I find this absolutely fascinating. And let me just mention as we're doing this, that this is the oldest book of the New Testament. This is the first New Testament book to be written. You say, well, what about the Gospels? The God- no, the Gospels were actually oral history and recorded after and compiled after this book. This is the oldest book. There are things about this book. If you look at it, you say, where is the theology in this? There's very little hardcore theology like what, what are in the Pauline epistles. There's no mention of Gentile in this book. Why was there no mention? Because it probably predated the entrance of the Gentiles into the church. Because remember, the book of Acts, Acts chapter, the book of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, and the book of Acts are, are chronological. Meaning that what takes place in the book takes place chronologically because it says it at the beginning of the book. And so in the book of Acts, this was written somewhere either partway through Acts chapter 8 or before Acts chapter 9, certainly this book was written. So if you look at the scenario... This book was actually penned probably prior to Acts chapter 9. So there's no mention of Gentiles. And that's why in, in, in James chapter 1 it even says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. 
This is to the 12 tribes of Israel that had dispersed, because in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about how there was a dispersion. So, think of this book as the first book being written when the church was formed. The first book. And that's why there isn't this, this developed theology, no mention of Gentiles, reference of the synagogue rather than the church. They didn't, hadn't even started calling it the church yet. The meeting place was the synagogue. But let's look, in, let's look who this James was. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. And so, there is a reference that James had a brother, that that, uh, Jesus had a brother named James, another one Joseph, another one Simon, and another one Judas, and he had some sisters. So he had brothers and sisters. So why do some denominations say that James wasn't a brother, that he had no brothers, that these were all cousins? Well, because there is, there, there is good precedent for cousins being referred to as brothers, right? In the Middle East, they do that. You will have a cousin, and they will say, this is my brother. And they'll all live in the same home. They'll all grow up in the same, not just the same neighborhood, they'll even live under the same roof. And a lot of times, this distinction that we have in our culture of, this is my brother... This is my first cousin. This is my second cousin. There wasn't that distinction. Relatives, the guys were brothers and sisters. But in any case, it does say here, brothers, look in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Reading from verse 3. Mark 6, 3. says, Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and not all his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. But again, a reference that he had a brother named James. Look in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 19. Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Okay, so here Paul is saying, I didn't see any other apostles when he went to Jerusalem after he got saved except James, the Lord's brother. Well, what we see here in this verse is James was the brother of the Lord... Now, this is different than the disciple James. There was a disciple. One of the twelve disciples was named James, but he was martyred early on. And, 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 and uh, um, you know, the first of the apostles to be martyred shortly after the death of Stephen. But this James was considered an apostle. And we're going to look into that a little bit of, of the two types of apostleship that there were noted in the New Testament. All right, let's look in in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. It says, says we'll start in verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, 
and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph had no relations, no physical relations with this woman, Mary, prior to the birth of Jesus. It says he kept her a virgin until the birth of, uh, of the son. Until the birth, till she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Now, we look at this and we say, you see there, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. Until the birth of the son. Until the birth. And in our reckoning, the way we deal with things in our culture, in our generation, is when, when we see this word, until, it means until that point. And then after that, it changed. Right? Isn't that the way we look at things? That's not always the way the Scriptures looked at things. Many times in, in Scripture, this is, an, this is idiomatic. This can be looked at idiomatically, meaning that from that moment and onward, you say, oh, come on, give me an example of that. Look in, in, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23. In 2 Samuel 6.23, it's speaking of Michal. Michal was David's first wife. She got upset with David because David was dancing before the Lord. And, and you know, she got upset with David because he was enjoying God. And God ended up closing her womb. And it says in verse 23 of, 1 Sam, of 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 6.23, it says, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Had no child to the day of her death, or some translations say until the day of her death, she had no child. So does that mean on her deathbed she had a child? You see what I mean? She had no child until the day of her death. Or she had no child to the day of her death. Does that mean that on the day of her death she had a child? No, we understand that that means she never had it. And that is why some denominations will say that Mary never had any children after she gave birth to Jesus. That she remained a virgin. Some denominations do that, and I wanted you to see that it's not without precedent. It's not without reason that they're doing this. And there's another key verse here. If you look in John, John chapter 19. This is amazing. I love to study like this. You look at the Scriptures so analytically, and you just start pulling these things out. The richness of this is just amazing. John chapter 19. This is when Jesus is on the cross. So Jesus is on the cross and he looks down from the cross and he sees Mary and he sees one of his disciples named, named John. So John, within the, the gospel according to John, does not refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But that's how he refers to himself, rather than to use his name. Which is commonly done with writers that they won't refer to themselves by their own name, but they'll use a certain description. Or the one on whom, uh, uh, G- the one on whom was leaning, uh, who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. We know that to be John. Sometimes he refer to himself that way. But look in John chapter 19, verse, uh, verse 26. Well, we'll do, start at verse 25. 
John 19.25 Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So here, Jesus is on the cross. What does he do? He looks out for the welfare of his mother. From the cross, he looks down. He sees his mother. He sees the disciple whom he loved, meaning John. We have multiple precedent for that's the way John referred to himself in this, in this gospel. He says to the, his mother, Woman, behold your son, And then he says to the disciple, he says, Behold your mother. And from that day, he took Mary into his household and protected her. Because a woman who had no husband, because somehow Joseph was out of the picture at this point. So from early on in Jesus' life, we we don't see Joseph anymore. We, We don't know exactly what happened. We have to assume that he died. But we don't know exactly what happened. There is no scriptural reference on that. But here she was, not to leave her alone, he has her come into the household of John. If James and all these three other guys listed, these four guys listed, were actual physical brothers, why wouldn't James take care of her? Or any of the other brothers? Why do this? Why why would he need this? Why would he need this sort of thing? To have her go into the house of a disciple. And you say, well, because we do know that his brothers did not believe on him. This we know. There's a reference in the Gospels that say even his brothers, his own brothers, these, other, these four brothers, James being one of them, did not believe on Jesus' Messiahship. Until after the resurrection, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus appeared to James. That's when James believed in him, that he was the Messiah, the resurrected Lord. One may argue that, oh, maybe, maybe Jesus didn't want Mary in the home of an unbeliever and put him in the home of, of John, but, uh, put her in the home of John. But that would be very unusual. If this was really her blood son, James, why not go into his home? Why not have these four brothers take care of him? You see what I mean? So, it's not without understanding. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I talked about this before a few years ago, but I don't know how many of you were here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because this is really amazing. We're going to look, because again, this is to underscore this point about, could it be that there's different... Different category, uh, this, these different categories of how the Scriptures talk about women. Look in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 32. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried 
and the virgin is concerned about things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. Okay, so verse 34. You've got to put on your thinking caps with me. Alright? Look at this scripture, verse 34. It is truly amazing. It says, and his interests are divided. Then it starts talking about women. The woman who is unmarried. Okay, so you have an unmarried woman. We know what that is. It is an unmarried woman. So that's one category. And the virgin. Could this be another category? Is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. Could it be that there are three categories? The unmarried woman, the married woman, and the virgin. Well, what is the virgin then? Well, did you know that in Israel at this time there were sects within Israel where women would marry men and never have sexual relations? And you go, oh, come on, I can't believe it. Well, our culture is different. In our culture, sex is very important to people. It wasn't always the case in every culture. And to this day, I know a missionary couple who have never had relations and they're married. And you look at it, this is weird, just weird. But you look at their lives and they're extremely devoted. That is totally their decision. That is up to them. There were sects back then, sects, sects that would not marry, that, that would marry but never have physical relations. You say, well, then sect would probably die out because they'd never have children. Well, that's right. The only people that came in, it, the, it was just converts that would come into it. But there were groups that were like this. Now, let's read it within that context. And if we read this within that context, that there may be married, unmarried, and virgins. Virgins being people who are married but are not having sexual relations. This portion may make greater sense because what's happened is the, 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 the NIV, if you're reading the NIV, doesn't do this. The NIV doesn't generally put in italicized words where they stick in words. They just stick in words. If you read the New American Standard or the New Revised Version, what it does is it says, if we're sticking in a word here that isn't there in the original, we're going to make it italicized so you know we stuck it in. You see what I mean? Now let's read what the scriptures say about this. Verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to, secure, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... If she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. So that's what verse 36 says. But the word daughter is italicized. Does anybody else have a Bible that shows italicized for the word daughter? Or does everybody use the NIV these days? You, you, what, what version are you using? Doesn't have daughter. What version are you using? Toward his virgin, right. So, and that's what it is. That word daughter is inserted in mine as italicized. Does NIV put daughter? 
This is virgin. Good. Good for them. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. So, in, does it say, let her marry or let them marry? What does your Bible say? In verse 36. They should get married. Yeah, and my, my Bible says her, but it has a footnote, literally them. Let them marry. So if a man is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, the, the New American Standard puts toward his virgin daughter. Let me tell you something. Men who act unbecomingly toward their virgin daughter, that is called incest. That is a real problem. Right? So this is saying that if a man is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, in other words, if he is married and he can't contain himself, let them come together. That's what it could mean. Because if you don't take it that way, read for me what, what the NIV says. Verse 36. Someone read it out loud. Okay, so it says the virgin that they are, they are engaged to. The engaged to is an inserted text. That is not there. And that's something that, that unfortunately the NIV gives you no indication of. When you read other Bibles, it gives you an indication of when they insert words. They'll put some footnote, they'll put some italicized, say this word isn't really here. Then it goes on. And he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and who has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. The word daughter is italicized. So in other words, to keep his own virgin, he will do well. So both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage does better. But again, daughter is italicized. In other words, he who... Gives his own virgin in marriage, does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. So, this, this scripture could indeed be read that there are indeed three categories. And if you look at it in the three categories, that there were married women that had relations with their husbands, there were unmarried women that would never been married, and there were virgins, meaning that they were married but they never had sexual relations. Everything fits. When you don't read it in that context, you have to start inserting words to make sense out of this thing, or else you're going to have some really messed up fathers. Do you see what I'm saying? Therefore, I want you to think about this. We as Protestants, if we call ourselves Protestants, and I hate to take that sort of nomenclature, but they will say that, that James was the half-brother of Jesus. But there are other denominations that categorically say he was a cousin. And there are, it's not without reason why they say this. It's not just because they said, well, no, we cannot fathom Joseph having relations with Mary. Therefore, we're going to say that she had no other children. It's not because of that. It's because they look at the scriptures, the very same scriptures that you and I study, and they look at it differently. And you want to know something? That is okay, as long as we're studying the Scriptures. And to say that these people are deluded because they don't think like we think. No, maybe we're deluded. Because a lot of times I've had certain pet theologies, and then I learn more and I go, uh-oh, that one was wrong. You, you see what I mean? 
It's not without reason. Okay, so that's this guy, James. So let's go back to the epistle of James. So he's either the half-brother of the Lord or he's a cousin of the Lord, but he's certainly a relative. And he says, he calls himself in verse 1, James, a servant of God, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of bondservant was totally strange and it was actually a real humiliating thing in the Greek culture. But he's speaking to Jews. How do we know he's speaking to Jews? Because he says in that same verse, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. The twelve tribes. He's not speaking to Gentiles. Remember, there's no reference to Gentiles in this book. This is prior to the church opening to Gentiles. You say, when did the church not have Gentiles? Uh, It didn't have Gentiles until you hit Acts chapter 9. So there was a long period where the church never had Gentiles in it. So people say, wow, how can you be a Jew and, and be a Christian too? I'm like, how can you not be a Jew and be a Christian too? Because the, the church was so Jewish early on. So Jewish. Remember, all the apostles were Jewish. All of them. There were no Gentiles in the church. This is why it would be terrible for him to say, I'm writing a letter, but if there's any Gentiles in your church, this is not for them. It would be like my saying, um, this, this Bible study class is only for Texans. If you're not from Texas, this is not for you. You see what I mean? I mean, that would be really strange. What's with this guy? I mean, we're all believers, right? He's writing to them, to the twelve tribes, because this is prior to the Gentiles even coming in. They couldn't fathom Gentiles coming in. Remember when Peter went, God slammed the Holy Spirit right down on the Gentiles, and Peter was like, whoa. And there were all these witnesses around him that were of the Jews. And they went back, and the apostles heard about this, and they were all upset. How could you have met with the Gentiles? And Peter said, look, I had nothing to do with it. God spoke to me a vision. I went and I spoke, and the Holy Spirit hit him just like he hit us. It was amazing to them. It was amazing to them that the Gentiles came in. So this is prior to that. This is a really old book. This is prior to all the development of, of uh, the theology that goes, uh, goes along with the Gentile church. So he's writing to them in this way. He calls himself a bondservant. This term, bondservant, meant that you were a, a bond slave of the Lord. Meaning that this goes, again, harkens back to the Old Testament. And these people understood it because they were Jews. They understood the law, they understood the scriptures, and it made sense in their context. When Paul is writing to a Gentile church, he writes and he doesn't pull out lots of Old Testament law-type descriptions because they don't relate to it. You see what I mean? They don't relate to it. There's no frame of reference here. But because they can relate to this, he starts talking in this way. And, and he's saying to them in this context, I'm a bondservant. What was a bondservant? A bondslave. Bondslave was a slave who then served their time and could be liberated, but chose to remain a slave forever to this person. And you, there are portions in the Old Testament that says that they were to have their earlobe put against the door of the house. The owner was to take an awl, an awl and, and 
slam it right through the ear into the door of the house to signify that this person has willingly decided to serve me in my home the rest of their lives because they love me so much. This is the concept of bond slave. And then, you know, the owner would pull out the all and, you know, the celebration was over. The ceremony was over. But you, you can appreciate that. That there are some servants that would love this family so much, they don't want to leave. This is what James calls himself. He says, I am a bond slave of the Lord. I have chosen to give my life. I have chosen to give my life for the Father and for the Son. This is who I am. He doesn't pull out this card and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a relative of Jesus. Listen to me. You know, people do that. People do that in this day and age. You, you know, they try to claim blood relation to a prophet. They will try to claim blood relations to, to some. And Jews will do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew. Look, what I am in the flesh means nothing compared to what we are in the Spirit. And Jesus put this whole thing to rest. He said, the greatest man ever born of woman is John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of woman. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, what we are in the spirit so supersedes what we are in the flesh that the flesh means nothing. You see what I'm saying? So even if you could claim descendancy from the tribe of Judah, it means nothing compared to what we are in the Spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? And this card, this card of descendancy or relation, blood relation to a prophet, is a big deal in a lot of parts, in, in a lot of the world. Yeah, okay. So there you go. In, in many parts of the world, this is a big deal. And to us, we're like, doesn't mean anything to me. I'm telling you, not everything is American culture. Did you know that? This is a big deal that the guy doesn't pull this card. He says, I'm a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father. You see what I mean? Isn't this amazing? That what we are in the Spirit, this guy recognizes it. So, we're going to learn more about this guy, James, because he's just amazing. And we're going to learn about how he lived, how he died. And then this is going to allow us, as we read this book, to say, whoa, now I understand why it is this way. Why he's saying this. Because once you understand this guy, then it becomes really a lot clearer why he would write this way. When you understand how early this book was written, and who the audience is, why he writes then this way. When we understand who this letter was originally written to. Who his intended audience was. He didn't know that people for the next thousands of years were going to be reading this book and applying that to themselves. He didn't know that. This was just a letter that he wrote to the, the twelve tribes that were dispersed and he greeted them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercies and for your grace.
Thank you, Lord, for this word. For the life of this man, James. And for the the words that he speaks. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that what we are in the Holy Spirit is the key. It is not what we are in the flesh. That no matter what our past, good or evil, that what we are in the Spirit so supersedes all of this. Lord, thank you for this truth. Lord, thank you for the truth of the Scriptures, the things that are hidden there and the things that are brought out. Lord, I pray for these young people that you continue to work in their lives and bless them richly. The grace of God be upon them, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.